statistics. Um, in 2021, the last year that I can find full data, currently there was almost 7,300 cases of examples of hate crimes being committed in the United States. There are almost 400,000 children in the U.S. who are currently in foster care. 11,000 of those children reside here in the state of Georgia. 719 million people in the world live in extreme poverty, which is defined as earning less than $2.15 a day. That includes 38 million of those people living here in the United States. There are currently 32 separate wars happening around the world right now, including civil wars, terrorist insurgencies, drug wars, ethnic conflicts, and then, of course, what's happening in Ukraine still. In 2020, the last year I could find complete data, there was somewhere between 629,000 and 916,000 children killed via abortions in the United States. The richest 10% of the world has 52% of all global income, while the poorest 50% of the world has just 8.5% of all global income. Within America, one in six Americans do not even know their neighbors' names. One in four millennials don't even know their neighbors' names. Humanity has been doing it our way for a very long time, and I think the evidence shows that we are not doing a very good job on our own. And this is not a uniquely American issue, obviously. It's a global issue, and it's not a contemporary modern issue. This has been an issue that's been going on for millennia. Going all the way back, if we see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Again, you fast forward a few hundred years or so in the book of Judges and the book of Judges, the people of Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When people live a life separate from God, what you see is what we get. Historically, in the news, all around us. But as we continue to look through this next section of Romans chapter 8, we see some amazing statements from Paul, not just on the reality of what life looks like apart from Jesus, but the change and what matters, and more importantly, what happens when the Spirit of God inhabits people and informs our lives and how we actually live. So I'm going to open in prayer, and then we are going to jump in to Romans chapter 8. Lord God, I pray as we look through this next group of verses that you've um, spoken through, Paul, that you remind us of how your spirit transforms completely, Lord God, that the hope of the world is through you and you alone, Lord, not what we can do as people on our own. In your name we pray, amen. All right, Romans 8, verse, starting in verse 2. We're going to read the whole passage, and then we'll go back and we'll kind of break up each section. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, 
but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the spirit is dead be, or the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We see in this passage a distinguishing here of a key difference that there are only two ways of living. There's no middle road. One, Paul tells us, is the spirit of life, living in the spirit of life. The other one is this life under the spirit of sin and death. There is no middle ground. There's no way to have one foot in one life and the other. It is the spirit of life and the life that comes with that, or the spirit of sin and death and the life that comes with that. There's no way around it, and it's applicable to us today because culturally we're in this huge weirdness could use the word battle, but it doesn't really feel right, of a completely different mindset between those who live in the Spirit and those who don't. And again, not unique to our current time and place. This has been going on for all of history, pretty much. But in our reality, what Paul is saying to the Romans and what the church in Rome was encountering is exactly what we're encountering today, a lifestyle in a world where we have people who live in the, in the spirit of sin and death without realizing it, and those of us who live in the spirit of life and the conflict between those two sides. It's a completely different worldview. It's a completely different understanding of nature. It's a completely different view on what lifestyles are right and wrong. It's a completely different world living under the Spirit or not of the Spirit. And Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome in a time historically where you've had, um, in years a little bit earlier than this, the emperor of Rome, Claudius, had kicked all the Jews out of the city of Rome. So as this church was planted and started growing, it was a church of mostly Gentiles. The Jewish population wasn't there. There was not this connection to Jewish history, to Jewish scripture, to Jewish traditions. So you had Roman citizens living in Rome, the most powerful, decadent city of the time, growing up without a context of the Jewish faith, looking around and seeing in their life, my neighbor's acting like this, my neighbor's acting like this, and I'm supposed to act like this. How is this possible? How is it possible that we are almost living in two completely different worlds? And Paul is laying out this explanation of Christian identity compared to the identity of the world around these believers to remind them that there is a difference and to show them what the difference is. So the beginning here in verse 2, Paul reminds those believers who they are in Christ and what that means. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Think back to last week, verse 1, Paul reminds these believers there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ of Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free. And what have we been set free from? We've been set free, again, from sin and from death. Again, put yourself in the shoes of these early believers. When they look around and see what the world around them is doing and looking like, and they're wondering why they're living these lives differently, what is compelling them to live a life where nothing, there's people around them compelling them to live a life where nothing matters except pleasures, while they are dedicating their lives to a calling that's bigger than them? 
Paul tells us that the evidence that believers are in Christ is that this worldly power, this power of sin and doing what they want has been broken in our lives. The Holy Spirit supernaturally frees us from that bondage so we do not have to live in brokenness and in death. The world around us does. We don't. And that's such an important fact to acknowledge and remember, and Paul shows us here how it's more than just a thing of like self-control, right? It's more than us just feeling like we need to beat something or feeling like we have to overcome our own or something we're trying to do. This is not Paul saying like, hey, you're a Christian, so really you need to try harder. That's not what he's saying, right? He's not saying if you do your best, then you can be different from people. He's saying that you have the spirit of life, the spirit of the living God who rose Christ from the dead in you, and that spirit is what gives you the power to break free of sin and death. Verse 3, he goes into this, says, for God has done what the law, again, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what does this mean, the law weakened by the flesh, when he says that? Um, is he saying that there's just no use following any laws whatsoever and you just do whatever you want? No. Okay, good. Good answer. Um, he's not saying that laws in general are irrelevant. He's not talking about governmental laws. He isn't talking about civil laws. So yes, you do have to follow the speed limit still. Um, yep. And what he's talking about is this overarching theme of the law as we see in Scripture, going all the way back to the Old Testament, what's sometimes called the Law of Moses or the Old Testament law that we see in the first five books of the Bible. The Ten Commandments, the Levitical and sacrificial laws, the holiness laws that the people of Israel had to follow, the rules and procedures outlined in the Pentateuch. Specifically what you see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all those passages when you're doing your Bible study that you skip really fast because you don't really know how to say some words and names and it doesn't really apply to you. That's what he's talking about. The law by its nature, that law is incomplete. It is unable to save us. It is unable to break us free of anything because it's dependent on man to do it on their own. The whole sacrificial system set up was not to once and for all forgive people from sin and set people free. It was just to push sin back a while. It wasn't an internal sacrifice and forgiveness. It was to roll it back until the next time a sacrifice had to be made, which then had to roll it back, which the next time you sinned, you had to make a sacrifice, which rolled it back. It was completely dependent on people had to do better to get salvation, but you can't get salvation on your own. In Acts 13.39, uh, um, the writer there, Luke, reminds us that Jesus came to break that old law as our perfect substitute and sacrifice. Acts 13 says, through him, meaning Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. The law itself, that is what we have to do to maintain perfection, right? Apart and being apart from sin, that's impossible. We can't do it. You can't live a moral enough life to get saved. You can't. You can't live an ethical enough life to break free from sin and death, from living under the Spirit. You can't do it. We cannot do it. We needed a higher sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 
lays this out for us. The writer of Hebrews says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's basically saying, like, if it could do this, you'd only have to make one sacrifice and then you'd be fine. But you can't. You have to what? Continually offer sacrifices every year. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin? Again, if you could just offer one sacrifice and you'd be good, that's all you would have to do, but we can't. And in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You can substitute that in our context to moral living, ethical living, making the right decisions, being a good person, to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Again, you're just going through the motions. It can't do anything for you. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings that were offered according to the law, Then he added again, Jesus, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, meaning the sacrificial system, in order to establish the second, the new law we are under with the Holy Spirit. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of what? The body of Jesus Christ. Not a goat, not a ram, not a dove, not good behavior, but through Jesus Christ once for all. One time, Jesus died sacrificed himself for us for all time. We see how the law is not and was never intended to make people holy or to break us free from sin and death, but to point to the fact that we are enabled to do so. And to herald or point forward or to um, foreshadow the arrival of one who did have the power to break us from sin and death, Jesus who died once and for all, conquered sin, conquered death, and brought us freedom. Freedom from a sacrificial system, freedom from trying to do it on our own, freedom from having a weight on our shoulders of we are required to do whatever it is that we think is necessary to get through it. We are free from that through Jesus. That's what the Spirit brings to us here The requirement of the law has been met through Jesus, not through our flesh, not through our own doing, only through Jesus. And this matters because it reminds us that we cannot accomplish salvation through our own power. We cannot overcome sin. We cannot overcome death on our own. And because of that, when we look around to the city and the world around us, we understand that it means that those who do not live under the spirit of life, like we as followers of Jesus do, Those who don't live in that spirit have an inability to live otherwise. When we look around the world and see how culture and humanity act and be and are, it is easy to lose hope and get frustrated and to get exhausted. And maybe we say one of two things. Maybe we say, you know what, there's just no hope for anyone. They got to figure it out. If they can't come to church, if they can't be like Christ, then there's just no hope for them, and I'm just tired. I can't do it. Or what is wrong with people? Why can't they just get their act together? Maybe we need to pass a few laws and make them force them to act right. Or maybe we just need to look down on them and 
show off our own behaviors and they'll get together, right? Either there's no hope for them, whatever, why do we even bother? Or maybe they just need to pull it together and if they can't do that, they don't deserve Jesus. Those responses are very much contrary to what we see in Scripture from the words of Jesus himself, right? Look at the parable of the lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, meaning Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners. When you have a whole different category of sin, like when they say there's all these sinners and there's also tax collectors, you know that's a bad group. So, tax collectors and sinners, not good. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the very holy, righteous people who followed the law to the letter, added additional laws to make sure you couldn't break the law because you had to break a first law to get to the actual law. They grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. How dare he? So he, Jesus, told them, the Pharisees, this parable. What man of you, having 100 sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he is found it, do you not lay it on your shoulders rejoicing? And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, over 99 righteous people who need not repentance. The parable shows us that Christ goes out of his way to redeem the lost, to find the lost, to bring them back to his flock. Any approach of ours that's opposed to this is no better than the Pharisees and what the Pharisees were saying to Jesus. And what Jesus was saying in his parable. The other argument that people just need to get their lives together or don't they realize what they're doing is wrong or immoral or against nature or whatever phrasing we choose to use is just as wrong. Look at what the next handful of verses they say in Rome. They, and let me preface this. I'm not saying that their lifestyle is fine and just ignore them, let people live the life they're supposed to live. I'm saying like, you can't just get it together because look what Paul says here starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, those apart from Christ, set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Not it will not. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. People apart from the spirit of God cannot please God because they are in bondage to the flesh bondage to sin and death. They literally cannot break free because we saw with the Old Testament law, there is no way to do it on your own. And this was with a group of people, the Jewish people, who knew God. God showed up. God spoke with them. God gave them the commandments. God went forward, like we even sang about, in a pillar of fire, in a pillar of cloud. He had the tabernacle. He literally came and resided with them. He was with them, and still the Jewish people could not follow the law. And we live in a time and place where people are anti-religion, where people are not just atheists or agnostic, but are opposed to any kind of religion. How are we supposed to expect people to just naturally come to the Lord on their own, to get their lives wrapped up together on their own? They are living their lives according to whatever human and worldly law they choose to use. Paul says their minds are set on the things of the flesh, meaning a constant desire towards things that define fallen, sinful human nature. They are literally slaves to it, Scripture says. 
They cannot break free. Their focus is greed or power or violence or arrogance or pride or anything else apart from the Spirit that causes us to live as believers. And for some who are without Christ, that seems obvious, right? Like there are people, there are some very evil, dark people in this world, right? You can probably think of them throughout history or currently, whatever. People of lies, manipulation, whatever, that you can point to and like, well, obviously they're not living according to Jesus. But a lot of people, I would say the majority of people who are slaves to sin and death don't even realize it. They're people who think they're mostly good people doing mostly good things. And they're either specifically follow another religion or philosophy or some kind of life journey that says they can essentially work themselves towards some kind of good karma or to redemption, or they don't think anything after life truly matters anyway, so what does it matter? Just live my life according to the way I want to, or they're unclear about what they need to do, and so they just try to live the best way they can because it's just good to be a good person. So when they, those who are not in Christ, hear you're living a life of sin. You need Jesus. You're headed to hell. Whatever terminology we use, not that those are wrong, but whatever terminology we use, the response can be, no, I don't. I'm not evil. I'm not perfect, but nobody's perfect. Christians aren't perfect. We're not perfect. I'm good. I pay my taxes. I treat my wife and kids well. I go to work. I work hard. I don't steal. I don't do evil things. I'm living a good life. So no, don't tell me that I need this. It's only the law, whoops, lost my spot. They are slaves, they're living by a law that cannot save or fulfill their own redemption. And that's why we talk and we share the gospel. That's why we live our lives and preach the gospel and live gospel and pray to God for the souls that we know who don't know Jesus because only Jesus walks over to them as the lost lamb lifts them up onto his shoulders, and brings them back to his flock. We can't do that. It's only Jesus. And so why do we build relationships instead of staying on a street corner? So we share the word in gospel word and action and pray to the Lord to open the eyes of those around us. Not just in missions moments for people around the world, although that's vital and important and I'm glad we do it, for those in our sphere of influence as well. We pray to God to open the eyes of people so they can see the insufficiency of the law that they are under and don't even know that they're under, and so they can be free as well. We don't give up on people because, but for the grace of God, we would be right there where they are. We didn't save ourselves. Only Jesus can do that. And without Jesus, without His grace and mercy, we would be right into that world and realm as well. So how are we different? What defines us differently than those enslaved? by sin and death. Paul finishes up his section in chapter 8 like this, verse 9, you, however, now talking to the believers in Rome, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
Whereas others around us are living in the flesh, enslaved by sin, enslaved by death, Paul reminds us that we are living free. By definition, we are free from the flesh, and we don't live in it at all. Not saying, again, we're perfect because we're not, but we are not enslaved and blinded by the world of sin and death around us. And it's only because of the Spirit of God that lives in us as believers in Jesus Christ. We see him mention this a few other places, like 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Do you not know, again, Paul likes to use this word to remind the believers he's writing to, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you whom you have received from God. You are not your own. We are not in our own. We are not on our own. We have the Spirit of the living God living inside of us, the one who, Paul said, raised Jesus from the dead. That same Spirit lives inside of us and brings us the freedom that we have been broken free of sin and death. The chains have been broken, not by our own works, but only by the works of God. We have received a special and precious gift, one in where the Spirit of God lives in us as believers. Paul constantly and consistently calls us God's temple, describing in terms, harkening back to the sacredness of the tabernacle and the Old Testament temple that you see repeatedly done through the Old Testament and referenced in the Old Testament, a place where God resided and encountered His people in a personal way. That Spirit lives within us, not metaphorically, actually. God has saved us directly from sin and death, and as those who are saved, we live lives completely separate from sin and death around us. Again, not because we're perfect, not because we're good, not because we work hard, not because we do on our own, because the, because Christ has broken us free, and we are not blinded to that reality, and we are powered by the Holy Spirit to be able to live differently than that. Romans 3, Paul addresses this. He says, what then? Are Jews any better off? And he, he's saying this in the way of like, because the Jewish people knew God and had the Old Testament law and had the tabernacle and the Ten Commandments and the temple, does that mean just because they were Jewish, they were automatically better off than the rest of the world? And he says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, meaning believers and non-believers. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Even when we think we're just doing good, we're not doing good. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips. A lot of S's. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace that they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. But then he says this in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human beings will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, let's focus and remember that outside of the Spirit, all are lost. We would all choose sin and death, on our own without Jesus. Everyone in this room would. Maybe not as vile, completely evil, horrible people that you see on the news, but just through regular life. We cannot save ourselves. We'd be lost and blinded to the truth and how God wants us to be. And again, the warning here is not to be arrogant in our salvation or demeaning to those who don't know Jesus, because any of us could be there very easily. 
is to remind us that humbly, without the grace of God, there go we. That the people around us that we know or don't know or interact with or whatever in our jobs and our families, on the news, whatever it may be, don't know Jesus. They are separate. They are under slavery. They are under blindness. They are not aware of the life they're living. And our remembrance through here is to remember humbly that God saved us and we humbly intercede and beg Jesus and get on our knees and pray and do what we can to help bring the gospel to the world so that others can be free from this as well. Paul reminds us first and foremost, it's a life that we live that isn't any of the things blinded by sin or enslaved by. Jesus reminds us again in John chapter 8, Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And next week, we're going to talk more about what does this mean to be sons and daughters of God. The Spirit has set us free. We've been liberated. We've been freed. The chains have been broken off. In the next passage, Paul starts going more in depth about what it means to be inheritors and sons and daughters in this kingdom. And free from what? We're free from inescapable sinful patterns and conduct that traps everyone without Jesus. But through Jesus, we're free both from guilt and the power of sin. And that such a powerful part of the gospel, it's a reminder that we, again, are nothing without Christ. We are saved by Christ. We are freed by Christ. We are redeemed by Christ. And everything good we have is by Christ alone. A life in Christ is a life opposed to sin and death, a life that is not enslaved, When we live out our lives, it's not one where we are continually in sin and be like, well, thank goodness Jesus forgave me, so I'm just going to continue to live in sin, and Christ will keep forgiving me, and that's just going to be nice for Jesus to keep forgiving me. We're not allowing our lives to be condemned and controlled that way because we are broken free. Christ has liberated us. Our mindset can shift. Our lifestyle can shift because of the freedom that we've been given by Jesus. It's where we build boundaries with those who live lives opposed to what we live. Not in a hateful, derogatory, isolated way where, like, let's lock the doors and only believers can be in here, right? But in a way that showcases our different lifestyle. We're different. Call, call, or the Scriptures call us to be a people distinct, set apart. And our lifestyle should seem obvious by the way we spend our time, our energy, our money, how we talk about each other or other people, what we do, how we act as a family, how we act on Sunday mornings, how we act on Sunday afternoons when we're not in the building, how we act on Wednesday afternoons. All of those things are different because of the freedom that Christ has brought to us. When those who are blinded and enslaved see us, they should be seeing a difference and should be aware of it. And again, not because of what we're showing off, not because we're showing off how much better we are, but because we remember and realized, realized how little we would have and be without Jesus. It's a humility that comes from us. That thank God that He saved us and that He's broken us free because we couldn't do it otherwise. Our lives are truly not just changed, but literally transformed completely because of the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of life that we are under. And it's hard. It's hard to live that way. Between social media and what we see on the news, or even if you're not part of both of those worlds, just reality of just living and going around anywhere we go. 
we live in a world that is hostile to God, Paul says. It was hostile to God in the first century. It was hostile to God in the Old Testament. It's hostile to God now. It'll be hostile to God 500 years from now, barring Christ's return. The world is blinded. Is the enemy active in our world? Absolutely. But are people just blinded and don't understand and don't know what the world is? What is it like to be free from sin and death? We do. Scripture tells us we've experienced it. We have that freedom. And so again, we pray and we thank God humbly for our salvation and how, God, can you please continue to work in people around us? In Algeria, in Marietta, all people. Remember that our witness comes not just in our words, but in our deeds as well, and not just in the abstract, but the practical. So those around us that we love, it's not just we're preaching at them because they need to know Jesus. They need to know Jesus. They need to hear the gospel. They need to see how the gospel has transformed life and the freedom that Christ gives us. Remember what John said, or Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That love isn't a random love. It's not a vague love. It's not a love that exists on paper and nowhere else, nowhere else, but a true love for one another as members of the kingdom of God. We are free of sin and we are free of death only by the grace of God. And that single fact, again, should astound us each and every day. When you wake up, you should be in awe of God's mercy towards you. When you go to sleep, we should be in awe of God's mercy towards us. When we go grocery shopping, we should be in awe of God's mercy around us. And that same feeling of awe should drive us to our knees to pray for those around us who do not have that grace and mercy, who are blinded, who are fooled, and who are deceived by our enemy, who is parading around culture, making everyone think that they know what's best for their lives when it's simply that they can't see the better life that is there for them. Not just those across the world, like I said, although, yes, those people across the world, but those who are next door. One in six Americans don't know the neighbors, your next-door neighbors' names. Quiz time. Could you name your neighbors around you, all of them, some of them, one of them? Maybe you can. If you do, awesome. That's amazing. That's step one. If you can't, that's step one. We are not called to all be missionaries to the ends of the earth. In Acts, when Jesus, or when they said, or the Great Commission, that's what I'm thinking, go to the ends of the earth, right? But before that, what does Jesus say? Go to Judea, go to Samaria, and go to the ends of the earth. Where were the disciples? They were in Judea, and then they were in Samaria next door, and then to the ends of the earth. There was a church in Jerusalem, there was a church in Rome. There was a church in Antioch where believers gathered in central important cities and there was churches spread around. You may not be called to go across the world. You may just be called to go across the street because the entire world is our missions field. We have all been given freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit through the grace and mercy of Jesus. And we've got to showcase that to the world around us because that is the only hope they have. They cannot do it on their own. They are blinded and enslaved and don't know it. And we can bring them knowledge of that freedom that Christ has and gives us 
through the power of His Holy Spirit. We're going to pray, and we're going to do communion. And with communion, we are remembering in awe what Christ has done for us. The sacrifice that He gave to once and for all, and of all eternity, one time, die and sacrifice and forgive and conquer sin. Not just push it back to the next year's sacrifice, not just wave it away, but to completely forgive us of our sin, to completely free us from the spirit of sin and death, to give us the freedom and the spirit of life that only His blood can provide, that He won out and He sought the ones who were lost, all of us, and brought us into His flock. And so we come and we remember that to spur us to action and to spur us to love and to remind us of the grace and mercy Christ has for us. So as those people who are giving the communion elements can come up, we're also going to have people up here who are going to be praying or available for prayer. If you need prayer, if you're living under the spirit of sin and death and you need prayer, they'll be up here to pray for you. If there are people in your world that you need prayer for, they're up here for you. If there's other things going on, Manny and Christina will be up here praying for you. And how we'll do communion is we'll start in the front, and they'll come up. We'll have two different couples you can come up to, and then we'll continue row by row through the back. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord, how you have liberated us, broken the chains that we are under, opened our eyes to what life apart from you looks like. We thank you, Lord God, for your death, your sacrifice, how you have saved us and forgiven us. And we pray for those around us, Lord, who have not yet been set free, for those who are still enslaved. We pray that you use us to spread your gospel message, to be examples, to show by our lives, our words, and our deeds what freedom actually looks like, Lord God, and how those who don't know you are under sin and death. We thank you, Lord God, that you are a God who cares and searches after the one who has left the flock, Lord Jesus, and we pray that you bring those into your kingdom. In your name we pray, amen.